Well, we come not only to uh, what we looked at a few moments ago, the Lord's Day 50 out of 52 in, in the Catechism. That's, we're getting toward the end, pretty significant. But we come today to the final minor prophet, the, the last book in our Bible, the one and only Malachi. <laughs> Never gets old. Never gets old. Malachi, it's not an Italian, uh, but no, it's Malachi. Um, and we come to, uh, like, as I said, this, this book that's the last in our Bibles. And what's interesting, if you've been with us as we've gone through the series, early on we spoke about how um, our Bibles get things a little different in terms of the order. Uh, we, again, in following the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, But even in the Hebrew Bible, uh, which again has some of the books ordered differently, Malachi is the end. This is, this is now finally like the end of things. This, this is the book, of course, right before the New Testament, and it, it's, it's known as the book right before the silent years. There's this period of time, 400 or so years, where God didn't speak Malachi marked the end of, of a word from the Lord, and, and then God's people were waiting, waiting. And it's fitting, even again, God in his goodness, as we've been in the series, as we are waiting to celebrate Christmas and, and the first advent and all that, uh, it's good to come to, to this book that um, is also a challenging book, to, to be quite honest. Uh, Malachi is uh, a book that um, the apostle Paul quotes, in, in the New Testament, Luke quotes it, Mark quotes it, and even uh, Jesus speaks uh, from, from Malachi. And so this is a book that is pretty important to the New Testament and, and needs to be important to us as well. Um, the name Malachi means my messenger. And so again, fitting that as God would bring uh, to an end uh, the old, what we call the old covenant or testament, the, the, the writings of the Hebrew scriptures, um, it would be a word from a prophet, and it would be a word from his messenger. Verse 1, if you have Malachi open, says the oracle, which you might recall too, that word uh, can mean burden, and it was for the prophets. They were given this oracle, this word, but it was a burden to them until they gave it. And even sometimes when they gave it, it was a burden because God's people weren't always happy or the surrounding nations, to whomever it may have been given, they weren't always happy. But this is the burden, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Malachi is very specific to Israel. Again, by Malachi, whose name means my messenger. Um, we come with Malachi once again to the hamburger. If you were with us uh, recently, we, we talked about this. I think actually it was last week. Um, that, that hamburger is simply um, a, a means to get you hungry a little bit, yes. Uh, but it, it, it speaks of this structure that you find uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew uh, scriptures. Um, we are very linear, typically as Westerners, and so we make our points usually up front, the main point, then we kind of fill in the main sub points, or maybe we'll build anticipation and then we'll have our main point. Uh, they often would, would speak to a middle. And so chiast, or chiasm or chiasm uh, is represented by an X, which is the, the Greek letter 
uh, key. And the idea is that there's something that comes to the middle, and that's the main thing. And so in a, in a sandwich, right, what's in the middle is the main thing, and you've got these parallel things surrounding it. So on the screen for your outline today, uh, I, I try to put that for you to note that. Um, and it's, it's a subtle one, I, I will admit. Um, it's not as obvious as some of the other uh, chiastic structures, but nonetheless, there's a heading. We just read it, Malachi 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, there's the concluding verses at the end. And then there are six arguments or, or disputation. Uh, that's the kind of fancy word. A disputation is this oral argument that, that flows. And all six of these basically have the same pattern. God is going to voice uh, a word against his people for their behavior. The people are going to respond uh, with uh, words with, how have we done that, God? They're, they're going to kind of come back to God with a question about why that charge is really true, and then God is going to respond yet to that question uh, with these, these disputations, these arguments. And so there's six of them in Malachi, four chapters, six uh, arguments. Really, this could very well be um, a sermon uh, with six main points. In fact, even better would be six sermons because there's a lot within these. We won't do all of that this morning, but just let, as you're looking at the screen, note uh, so A, first disputation, uh, that's somewhat parallel to the sixth disputation or argument in Malachi 3, 13 to 4, 3. And then the second or B disputation is, is parallel and similar to uh, the fifth disputation. And then finally, right in the middle, the C there, the third and, and fourth disputations, those again, there's a parallel structure to those. Again, it's not... Uh, hugely evident or, or hugely important. I mean, it is, because that's how God worked it, and we're going to kind of note that. Um, but the, the, way, the way it comes up is, one of the refrains that is over and over put in this book is uh, the words, but you say, uh, and then this response. And so there in the, the C section, there's like a doubling of the but you says. And so again, uh, scholars note that, again, uh, there is this, this symmetry to this. Again, in each argument, God voices the argument or the bad behavior of his people. The people question God, really? Have we done that? And then finally, God responds. So what I want to do this morning, again, we we don't have time to work through all six disputations. Um, They're important. We we will note um, kind of some some big themes even as we get into some of these. But, But I want to pull out these three main movements, and these are going to be our three movements for the service. On one level, Malachi is about true worship. What does it mean for God's people to to truly worship him the way God intends? Some scholars believe that uh, at this point, and by the way, this is now about 100 years since the decree came uh, for God's people to be able to come back to the promised land. So we were in Haggai and Zechariah, right? Those prophets we looked at the last couple of weeks, and they were preaching and encouraging the people to keep building. Well, so quite a lot of time has happened now, and it might very well be that the temple has been rebuilt, um, and they are maybe offering sacrifices. We aren't 100% sure. Most scholars believe that in terms of chronology, this fits right in there with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are all in your Bible post-exilic, meaning after the exile, right? So God's people are back. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they, they speak of what was happening to God's people. And it seems that Malachi is preaching during 
this time. So a long time has transpired, and they, they might have the right view of God, at least in their head, at least verbally. It seems that they are orthodox in what they say they believe, but how they live that out definitely is off. And that's, that's what God gets at in, in this book. He, he's concerned with his people and how they worship. God's going to address the priests and, and some ways the priests were dishonoring God. God, God is going to address the people and, and their giving and, and how they were dishonoring God with their giving and, and some other things. So on, at a big level, it's about the worship of God. And it's interesting for us, right? We're, we're, we're living on this side of the timeline, right? Way, way past all those events. Uh, we, we believe, of course, uh, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Of course, we're celebrating it this time of year. He's come, <clears throat> and now God doesn't uh, simply work within one ethnic group. It's not just the nation of Israel, but now it's, it's Jew and Gentile. Every, every nation and tribe and tongue, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, those are God's people all over. So th- there becomes uh, kind of a, a uh, trying to figure out well, what is true worship now? Um, we, we have verses like Romans 12, 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul says that we having been saved by Christ, right? Those of us that are Christians, we are to present our our bodies as living sacrifices, which he then says is our acceptable worship. And the whole point there in part reminds us that worship is more than just our gathering. Absolutely, right? We worship God and how we, you ready for this, any of you that are students? Uh, We worship God for how we act as students in our studying and in our, our prepping for class and in our homework. And of course, those of us that have jobs, we worship God by our, our work and working unto him. We worship God by how we treat one another. Life, on the one hand, is worship. <clears throat> but there is a sense that God's people are still to gather, like we do, and, and to worship in certain ways. And, and so what does it mean for us New Testament saints how, how are we to worship? And so there, there are debates and there are groups that follow these principles. These aren't explicitly stated in the Bible, but there's, there's a thing called the regulative principle. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Regulative principle, a few of you. So uh, these folks that follow that, they believe that the only way Christians should worship are by the th- things that God regulates in his word. And so... Uh, God doesn't say anything in his word about video, so you shouldn't use video, they would maybe say, um, and, and so on and so on. And you could look at other examples too, whether it's, uh, you know, some churches have some skits or drama videos sometimes, and, and those that follow the regulative principle would say, no, 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 should only do the things that, that God's word expressly says. Then there's others that follow the normative principle, and there the idea is, you can do anything in worship that God doesn't expressly say not to do. So if God doesn't say, don't have a skit, well, then it's okay, maybe, right? And so on. Uh, and so somewhere in, in the middle of all that, we free church evangelicals, we, we try to come up with our, our liturgy. And, and so what we do, uh, just as a quick reminder, just, just to walk you back through the morning, we, we believe it's important to have a call to worship. So you heard Lori open with the scripture, calling us to gather, to worship. We, we see that 
played out, that principle throughout the scriptures. And then we sing. The scriptures speak of God's people in both covenants singing. Uh, The scriptures speak about the public reading of the scripture. So again, you heard the scripture from the platform, uh, from the Briggs family with the candles. We're going to teach the scripture. That's definitely supposed to be part of worship. Prayer, there's prayers involved. Um, and, and so on. Uh, and, and so we do that. And then we respond to God's word by typically having a song of response. So we have tried to, to have a liturgy of what, what it might look like uh, in an hour plus to, to have a call to worship, to draw near, to admit our need, to hear from the scriptures and be drawn toward Christ and to respond and then to go out with the, the benediction. And that's our attempt at, at worshiping biblically. So Malachi, back to Malachi, in the Old Testament, uh, his, it seems that his brothers and sisters, they, they had an orthodox view of God, but, but they weren't living it out. It didn't translate what they said they believed with how they believed. And so um, one writer, he comes up with these three headings, which I'm going to borrow and make as the three movements through our message today. Number one, worship of God involves how we approach God. Number two, worship of God involves how we treat other people. And then number three, worship of God involves what we do with ourselves. So with those three headings, trying to find these six disputations and and find kind of some overview um, highlights. So number one this morning, worship of God involves how we approach God. God. So let's jump in at chapter 1, verse 2. And the first disputation or the first argument is found um, right here in verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Well, right away, Malachi confronts us with this wonderful doctrine of election and calling. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy for this Sunday morning. These verses, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Boy, we don't like hearing that. These verses, by the way, aren't just isolated right here in this little minor prophet, you know, one of those parts that we just got to kind of maybe not deal with and and move on, you know, to the good stuff, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, that's true. And yet the Apostle Paul would would use these very verses in Malachi 1, 2 through 5 to ground his argument in Romans chapter 9 that God chooses some and 
doesn't choose others. And we don't have time this morning to go into Romans 9 and, and to look at that, but look it up this afternoon. Um, read Romans 9, and they are difficult verses. Um, this concept in the scripture of the sovereignty of God, especially as it relates to his choosing or electing whom he does. And here, and we know the story. You know the story. Going back to Genesis, God chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. God, God made a decision, not because Jacob was a good guy. Come on, if you know the story, you know. He wasn't, hardly, but God made a choice. And before that, God had made a choice. God chose Abraham compared to everyone else. And then, and God does this, and God is making a point, and that's Paul's point in Romans. Like, who are we to tell God who he has a right to choose and not choose? Now, again, all I can do is kind of raise the issue, and if, if we need to have a coffee and, and work through this, I'd love that. Let's, let's do that. But here's a couple things to note. We hear, I mean, as we read it in English, Jacob... I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we, we immediately think in terms of love and hate as emotions. We, we jump to that, right? How, how I hate the Seahawks for good reason, okay? Uh, this, this isn't, that God's not like that. God's not on his throne emotionally nitpicking who he doesn't like hating, and then, you know, based on emotions. This is, this is language of covenant. This is, this is language of, of extreme. If, if he chooses one person, one brother over the other, then it's as if he hates the other, right? It's, it's, it's extreme language, but it's not speaking of this emotion. Uh, it's not, again, God choosing, and oh, I just can't stand that one, because again, it's not that Jacob is morally perfect or was morally perfect. God, God was making a choice. And this again is the Apostle Paul's argument in, in Romans. What, what I do want to read is from the book of Ephesians. And if you want to keep your hand in Malachi and then turn to in the New Testament, Ephesians. Let me just read a few verses from chapter one. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it here. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. You hear right there uh, in verse uh, four, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, and then right at verse five, predestined us for adoption. Um, so there's that language of, of choosing. So as I said, you have divine sovereignty. God chooses, predestines, but there's human responsibility. We aren't puppets. God isn't just, you know, controlling us. 
these, these, these things are in tension. They're paradoxical. They aren't contradictory. They come up in the Bible. Divine sovereignty, and there's human responsibility. So God is chosen. God is predestined. We don't know. We don't sit around and go, duck, 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 goose, duck, duck, right? You know, elect, elect, non-elect, non-elect. How dare we if we do that? We are to those of us who have believed human responsibility. We've put our trust in Jesus. God so loved the world, they sent us son that whosoever believes, those of us that have believed, somehow that means God predestined us. Well, we, we freely announce and tell people, trust Jesus, turn to Jesus, believe. The things that belong to God belong to God. It's not our business to worry about who is elect and who isn't. Back to Malachi, though, notice, it starts with verse 2, I have loved you. But the whole thing, right, election is about the fact that God loves, God, God chose. And I just say, none of you in the room that are Christians this morning, and I'm with you, none of us that are Christians are that lovable that God had to do it and should have done it, right? We, we chuckle because we know we're not. But God loves us. And so as we're, as we're considering worship of God involves how we approach God, part of approaching God is understanding he loves his sons and daughters. He loves us. He chose us. And even to the exact words in Malachi, God says, I love you. And, but sometimes we say, well, God, how have you loved us? Really? And sometimes we, 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 that's our retort to him. My life's hard, God. I got this problem. I got this struggle. Really, God, you love me? And God says, I, I do. I chose you. I sent my son for you. One commentator says, we too were chosen to belong to God, not based on our works, but simply out of God's electing grace in Christ. That's what I read to us from Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. We therefore cannot sin our way out of God's love, yet at the same time, we were chosen, and I read it to you in Ephesians 1, 4, we were chosen to be holy and blameless, not only positionally, but practically. So God still, because he loves us, rebukes our sin through his word, and he calls us to repent sincerely and to turn to him for forgiveness. And so we hear the word of the prophet, return to me, return to me. And if we're sons and daughters of God who have been chosen, we do, we do. This morning in my prayer time, praying, give me this day, Lord, my daily bread, there was plenty that God brought to mind that I needed to repent of. But at the heart of worshiping God and, and having it involve how we approach him, we have to, we have to understand God and he, he loves us, and, and he's sovereign. So look again back there at, the, uh, um, at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, there's his sovereignty, not just for God's people, but right there in Malachi 1, there's this little hope that God's love, God's greatness, his sovereignty is going to touch non-Jews. It's going to be for everyone. We have to understand who God is. He's sovereign and great and loving. He's sovereign and great and loving. Uh, the, the, the sixth and final um, 
dispute is going to touch again on worshiping God. And I would just have you look there uh, at another time and, and see. Uh, we'll, we'll touch briefly on it at the end of the message. But let's move to the second kind of summarizing point. Worshiping of God involves not only how we approach God, but secondly this morning, worship of God involves how we treat other people. And so right in in the middle of Malachi, as I mentioned, um, these third and fourth disputes, arguments, um, they they center on this, this very point, how we treat other people. And in Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16, God deals with marriage, and most especially, he's going to deal with the issue of divorce. So again, Malachi, okay, we've got election and predestination. Now we've got to talk about divorce. Easy topics. Follow along as I read Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one father? Has not... One God created us. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. So here again, we, we have God speaking about treating other people, and specifically, he's speaking about marriage. And there's kind of two points he wants to deal with. He wants to deal first with um, God's people marrying outside the faith. Okay, This is not speaking about uh, marrying outside a different ethnic background, that that is not the point. The issue is uh, they were marrying those who did not worship the Lord. God had forbidden God's people from marrying foreigners. And it's not because he was trying to keep his people racially pure. Okay, hear that. No, but it's because he wanted them to be, we could say, religiously pure. God's people were not to marry outside the faith. And, and that seems to be one area that where they had been violating God's intent. And then the other, that second one, has to do with, honestly, what we know in our world, basically no-fault divorce. That, that is essentially what was going on. They, they were divorcing for any old reason, 
you, you might say. Now, I want to do something here. Some of us, uh, we've heard Malachi 2.16 before, and we've probably heard it from the old King James uh, language. Um, so, uh, pardon my moving my, my Bible. I, I did not grab my reading glasses, so I have to, for that real fine print, do some dancing here with the book. So let me read Malachi 2.16. For the man who, this is the English Standard Version. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. But there's some footnotes uh, directing us down. And so the language maybe you're more familiar with is from the old King James that says something along these lines. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. And so um, there's some question, that, and that's maybe how we've heard it. God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16. Well, look, take a look at the screen. Uh, here's the ESV, and again, the, the footnotes in the English Standard try to point out that there, there is a possibility of this being rendered a different way. So here's what I read. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. This man covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, so guard yourself in your spirit. So this is ESV, uh, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Similarly, if he hates and divorces his wife, so it here isn't talking about God, so the, it's a similar translation. So it, the, the question is, is it that God hates divorce or is it that the man uh, hates his wife and divorces? Okay, so that's kind of the textual question. So the CSB, fleshing that out, if the man hates and divorces his wife, he covers his garment with injustice and then the rest is the same. The New International Version, by the way, this is the new New International Version. Some of you didn't know that there is a newer New International Version. Same translation principle if the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord. Okay, again, as opposed to God saying he hates divorce. But now here's the NIV 84, which probably if any of you have an NIV, you have this one, if you've had it for a while. This renders that, that language that is in the King James. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. So the point is to show you, well, what's, which is it? Does God hate divorce or does a man hate his wife and thus divorce her? Is that, is that the issue going on? And, uh, we, well, I tend to lean with these newer translations um, and this teaching here that the idea uh, is that this, this fits actually better with the whole of Scripture, right? Because Scriptures do Scriptures do make allowance for divorce under some circumstances. That's, now, please don't mishear me. God doesn't love divorce. God's the one who created marriage. God wants people to stay married, but there are allowances for divorce. In, in the context of Malachi, God's people seem to have just started to come up with all these crazy reasons that they could get divorced. And this carried into the time of Jesus. Um, 
And so when Jesus teaches on it, Jesus, again, talks about um, really the issue of adultery being one of the main and only allowances God gives for divorce because at the time of Jesus, uh, there were rabbis that taught, you know, if, if your wife, if she's cooking your breakfast and she burns it, she's committed a disgrace, you can divorce her. I mean, really, they came up with things like that. And that seems to be what was happening in the time of Malachi. So I think better is the new NIV, the CSB, the ESV that, that wrestle with the Hebrew and come up with Malachi 2.16, not saying that God hates divorce, although again, at one level he does. He doesn't want his people to divorce. But what this verse says is the man who does not love his wife, who I'm just going to divorce her because I want someone younger. I'm going to divorce her because I want someone who cooks better. I'm going to divorce her because I'm just tired of her. And again, it's written in the context of, of a world where the men had the rights to do that. We, we could in our day put it the other way. The, the principal church is, is that in this time, God's people, their, their worship of God was to involve how they treated one another. And God wanted to address families and how they treated one another in, in marriage. And we need to hear this still. Um, we, don't, we don't need lawmakers legislating marriage and what protecting marriage looks like and all that. We, we as God's people need to say and, and learn from Malachi here that God wants Christians to marry Christians. To, to be equally yoked, as the Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament, to, to marry someone that believes in the same God they do. And that needs to be something we want to protect in terms of marriage. And God wants his people to be committed to stay married. Now, are there, again, allowances? Yes, and, and there's complicated situations, and this is just one part of this book and part of the Bible that has a lot to say on the issue of divorce um, and and. There's way more to be said than we can cover this morning, but, but we too ought to not just be flippant with, with divorce, and, and, but, but no, God, God wants his people that are married to stay married, and it takes work, and it takes struggle, and anyone that's been married more than a day knows it takes work, and there's struggle, and there's tension, and, and, and it's hard, and if there's challenges, you come, and you get help, and you, you work through things, and and if there's been divorce, there's grace and there's forgiveness. And, and divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. But, but marriage needs to be treated with the, the sacredness that God intends. And so God's people, they, they were not um, worshiping him well with how they treated others, especially in the context of marriage. The, the other uh, parallel disputation, uh, we don't have time, but it deals with how they were treating other people. And basically, they, they weren't treating people kindly. They weren't uh, seeking justice for people. And, uh, and, and God addresses that too. True worship means we treat other people the way God says we are to. But let me move on to, again, kind of the third summarizing movement back through these divorce verses. Once more, worship of God involves what we do with ourselves. So it involves how we approach God. We have to understand that worship of God means he's holy and good and sovereign. Uh, he loves us. Uh, we, worship of God involves how we treat others. Malachi addresses marriage. But, but Malachi also deals with 
what we do with ourselves. Um, and so at Malachi 1.6, so that's the second argument, and then uh, at, at Malachi 3.6, we have the, the, the fifth argument. Um, we, we have these uh, teachings about their, their worship. Um, let me just uh, summarize Malachi 1.6 through 2.9. We could call it, we, we are to give our best. So the priests, they decided, even though they were to bring spotless and pure animals for the sacrifices and not ones that were disfigured or, or you know, had a broken leg or things, and they started to think, well, who's going to know if we use the animals that are kind of, you know, not, not perfect? And that's what they were doing. And God calls them out for it and says, you're not bringing your best. I've told you what's to be brought and, and you're, you're profaning me and, and my, my word by, by not bringing your best. So God calls, especially in that context, the priests. But then the, the final one, Matthew 3, 6 through 12, and, and chances are, if you've heard a sermon out of Malachi, you've heard a sermon from this section, I'll read it, Matthew, or Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, there's that call, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return and then God, God responds, will, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And then God responds, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts." So not only were they not giving their best, the priests with, with these animals that were blemished, but God's people and their worshiping of God, they, they weren't um, treating themselves right by not giving their full tithe or contribution. So often, um, right away, this, this gets used as a teaching on giving in the church today. And I'll just say this, uh, the principle is there for us too. We, we are to give God our all, right? Um, how much now? We're, we're after the Old Testament, we're into the New Testament. What, what are Christians supposed to give? Are they supposed to give a, a tithe or is it more, is it less? Well, again, um, it would seem that Jesus would say, you, you should give more. You should give your all. Jesus would highlight a woman who gave just a couple pennies and yet he says to his disciples who are kind of mocking, well, you know, what good is that offering? And Jesus says, she gave her all. She gave everything she had. 
And then as you move along into the New Testament, and especially 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, there you find the most specific teaching, what it means as a New Testament saint to give. And again, um, the principles seem to be that we are to give generously, um, sacrificially, um, not sparingly. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided not reluctantly or under compulsion, but joyfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. We look to Christ. He, he says back in chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He gave up everything so that you might, by his poverty, become rich. Right? right? Jesus didn't say, well, I'll just, you know, kind of, throw down some of my grace on him and, you know, save him. He, he left heaven and Paul says, so as you give and as you plan to give money to the needs, like look at Jesus. And so how much do we give? Do we give a tenth? Do we give less? Do we give more? God wants you to decide what you're going to give and to be generous and sacrificial, but, but to give your, your all, whatever that may be. You, you still need money to live. You still need money for bills, but have you decided what you're going to give? Uh, just just as a warning to those of you that are regular SOMA people, you're going to get an email in a couple days. Um, we're behind in budget, um, and that's not uncommon this time of year. Uh, and generally, a lot of us, there, there's a, an extra bit we give at the end of the year. Um, but but we're behind. Now, I, I just our, our, our spending is below what we've budgeted. So, right, we've, we've budgeted this amount, and we've, we're spending below... But, but what's come in in offerings is, is below. So we, we need to know that. And so, um, you know, if you're a guest this morning, here, here, right, there you went to church and they're talking about money. Um, that's kind of the proverbial thing that they always say um, happens. Uh, I think I could count on one hand the number of times I've talked about money in 14 years uh, from the pulpit. This is God's word for today. And Malachi says, worship of God involves what we do with ourselves, including giving. And, and so I, I just call us, that call Soma home. This isn't for you guests that are visiting, but for those of us that call Soma home, have you been giving what you have determined to give? Have you even determined what you're giving? That's the other thing. God doesn't want us to treat giving, you know, like, like giving the server a tip. Like, ah, it's been a good, good year. The church has done me good. I'll give them a good one. But we can subtly live that way or, or, or you know, but to determine, to, you know, to think it through. So at church, you'll get a letter and, and you'll, you'll see some numbers and just, just pray about it. And it's between you and the Lord. You give what you and the Lord and your family have determined. God will meet our needs and, 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 and I believe that. But we are called to give our all. And back to the first point, the priests and their offerings. Um, we don't give offerings like that, but, but we're to give our best. And our best doesn't mean perfection, but we're to give our all to God. Back to Romans 12, which I quoted for you. Um, as a living sacrifice, we're to present our, our whole body to God as a living sacrifice. I want to jump to the end of Malachi, chapter 4, as we conclude the message. So just toward the end of that final disputation... Um, let me jump actually back once to chapter 3. 
It would be wrong to not read this. Matthew 3.1, or Malachi, I keep saying that. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's the verse that Jesus speaks of and that Luke and Mark quote, all in reference to John the Baptist. So here in Malachi 3, it's setting up that, that John is coming, this one who's going to prepare and make ready the Lord. But, but even there, the Lord is mentioned. He's coming. We have this prophecy that some 400 years later will be fulfilled. But now to chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So this is the day of the Lord. Again, that second advent. For those of us that know him, it's, it's a joy. As this next verse, look at it. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves for the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So again, for, for, for people that aren't believers who have not responded to the Lord, the day of the Lord is a scary day. But for us, he says here, it's like the sun of righteousness. Does anybody have that phrase ring any bells this time of year? We're going to sing in just a moment the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that picks up that line. And I remember as a kid reading the words, and wondering, why does it say the S-U-N of righteousness? Isn't it talking about the capital S-O-N, the son of righteousness? But, but the line in that hymn is from this verse, and it's talking about the son, and it's this picture that um, when Jesus comes, it's like the son of righteousness. Even as we had about an hour ago, or two now, right? And with all the rain and darkness, all of a sudden the sun comes, and it's light, and and what a joy it is when the sun comes, this image of the rising sun, even as we started our worship this morning, that, that song, this figure is throughout the scriptures, Isaiah 60, um, and, and all throughout, there's, there's healing. And when, when Jesus comes, all the wrong will be made right, and, and all the bad things will be undone. And, and so we look, God, come again, your second advent. We, we look back, you've come, but we long for you to come and for that, that glorious day. And so Malachi addresses that. And then it ends, finally, I won't read the verses, but there's a look back to the law and this call to remember God's word. And then this remembering of Elijah, who again, John the Baptist would, would come as, as Elijah himself did and and that concludes the minor prophets, and it concludes this, this gut punch books that, that call us again and again to return and to evaluate um, how we're living, to, to evaluate ultimately who God is. And in this book, wants us to think about worshiping God uh, for who he is and knowing him and worshiping God by how we treat others, especially caring about marriage. And we need to be people that, that call singles in our church that are pursuing marriage to, to pursue within the faith. And, and we need to call people in our church to stay married if, if they can. God wants people not to just 
be flippant. Um, and we worship God by what we do with what we give of our all and our best and our offerings. So would you stand and let's proclaim this hymn um, celebrating what the angels sang, uh, the glory of the newborn king and, and that longing for the return. So Father in heaven, I, I admit this series through these minor prophets has been challenging. There's so much to understand and nuance. But the overriding points are pretty clear. You call your sons and your daughters to, to repent, to return to you. You call us to, to live in light of what we believe. You call us to, to worship you in truth and to live in response to that. And I pray we would. And I pray we would even with these things we've heard from Malachi today. So help us. We need it. We need you every hour. We need you if we're to be obedient to this word. But thank you, Jesus, that ultimately we don't look to our obedience. We don't look to our ability to live how you've called us to live. We look to you, the one who came um, and lived the life we can't live and died for us for when we fail. And we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name.